This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Young Turks, The Onion Radio News, The Rachel Maddow Show, The David Pakman Show, The Progressive, Media Matters, Comedian Lee Camp, The Double X Gab Fest from Slate.com, and Opinionated. A note for our more sensitive listeners, this episode does contain some sentiments that suggest women should have sovereignty over their own bodies. Last week, um, the Institute of Medicine recommended that the Obama administration have uh, private health insurance companies pay for contraception, so women would have access to affordable contraception, uh, pap smears, those types of uh, services. Well, Bill O'Reilly talked about it on his show, and um, he had an interesting uh, statement to make about women who do get pregnant, so let's watch. Um, So you, of course, as a liberal, have to agree that all... Uh, birth control for all women should be paid for by the government, correct? Absolutely, because when you're talking about cost, Bill, the cost up front is very little in comparison to the cost in the long run. Four billion a year, Leslie, that's not little. Four billion. Uh, No, the the cost in the long run, the savings in the long run will be greater because, as you know, about half of the pregnancies right now are unplanned, unwanted. There are going to be less abortions. There are going to be less people on welfare, less people on Medicaid, less people on food stamps, less health issues for the woman and the child, less foster care. I hate to say it goes back to our previous segment. Many women who get pregnant are blasted out of their minds when they have sex. They're not going to use birth control anyway. So he's referencing um, a study that they were talking about that uh, mentioned that uh, one in five people still binge drink, mm-hmm. even when they're not in college, right? right? So he's making that reference, but he's so, I mean, obviously he's so wrong. So it's going to cost $4 billion a year to provide uh, free contraception. You know, United States spends um, $11 billion a year in helping women who have unwanted pregnancies. Okay, so, and that doesn't even take into account all the costs that come after that, right? right? And which is gigantic. And second of all, what kind of idiotic argument is we shouldn't fund birth control because some women get drunk and don't use it? Well, then shouldn't we encourage them to use it more? <laughs> okay, but that would require logic, and that's where Bill O'Reilly runs into some issues. Or also on that same vein of thought, that same thought process. Oh, you know, it's similar to the war on drugs. You know, when people are high. They, they commit crimes. So when people have unprotected sex, they're drunk. No more alcohol in this country. We, gotta, we have to outlaw it again. Yeah, that's they a good point, sex. because prohibition worked really well last time. What do you think, Bill? You know, uh, another example would be, oh, college students get drunk. They binge drink all the time. So let's get rid of uh, higher ed. Yeah, definitely. Get rid of college students. Uh, <laughs> it, I mean, all those you know, people getting drunk and getting late at frat parties? If you just ban that, you'll all be set. Birth control, who needs it? Okay. Uh, I'm always amazed at their lack of logic. We start in Arizona tonight where the state legislature is grappling with the pressing issue of foul-mouthed public school teachers. This is Arizona State Senator Lori Klein. She's a Republican. Senator Klein has introduced state legislation 
bill in Arizona that would punish teachers for using speech that violates the FCC's standards for network television shows. So Senator Klein wants to stop the scourge of teachers cursing. As her bill is written, this would have the Arizona state government regulating the language of teachers, not just while they were in the classroom, but anywhere in their whole lives. So, math teacher, if you hit your thumb with a hammer, the state government of Arizona will be listening in to make sure you only say dang, or they'll leash, they'll unleash, you know, all heck on you, I guess. <laughs> it's sort of hard to be really angry at somebody if you've barred the whole swearing thing. Anyway, if, if that's not a big enough role for um, uh, a government for you, there is a man in Virginia I'd also like you to meet. His name is Virginia Delegate Bob Marshall. He's also a Republican. Delegate Bob Marshall once tried to outlaw swearing in email, um, not just by teachers, not just by any one group of people, not just in a particular kind of email. Bob Marshall proposed that Virginia state government outlaw profanity by anyone in any email sent from the Commonwealth of Virginia. Now, it's one thing to think that swearing is bad. Swearing is bad. Uh, it's another thing to say that swearing is bad or to ask other people not to do it. But to dislike swearing so much that you would expand the role of government, you would create a government so intrusive that the government would monitor your speech and read your emails in order to prosecute you for swearing, few people are that dedicated to stamping out curse words. But that is what Arizona is considering today for its teachers on the state's 100th birthday. And that is how seriously Bob Marshall took the problem of Virginia's email swearing epidemic back in the 1990s. This year, Virginia delegate Watch Your Mouth Bob Marshall is championing another really, 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 really big government conservative cause. It's an anti-abortion, anti-birth control personhood bill that would define a person under essentially the entire code of Virginia state law as beginning at the moment of conception. You might remember the whole personhood idea from its double-digit defeat on the Mississippi ballot last November, or its 46-point defeat in Colorado in 2008, or its 42-point defeat in Colorado again in 2010. What Bob Marshall is proposing in Virginia is essentially the same thing that has been defeated by voters in Mississippi and in Colorado. A key element to personhood's big loss in those states was the implication spelled out quite graphically on this billboard that went up during the Mississippi campaign. It was the implication that the personhood thing had for birth control. If you grant a fertilized egg the rights of a person, you might just be banning not only all abortion in all circumstances, but also hormonal birth control, which is the kind of birth control that most American women use. The personhood folks know they have been losing. Uh, in part because they seem to want to ban birth control. In Mississippi, for example, once they seem to be losing ground on the birth control is murder argument, uh, they changed their personhood campaign's language uh, on their website about birth control. Early in the campaign, they had listed on their website all the kinds of birth control that they opposed. But after a couple of weeks, that language mysteriously disappeared and much softer language appeared in its place. Sort of playing down the birth control issue, saying it's not that they were opposed to birth control, they just didn't necessarily advocate for the use of contraceptives. In Virginia, the Republicans backing the personhood measure in that state had a chance to take the birth control argument off the table entirely. A Democratic delegate, Vivian Watts, tried to attach an amendment to the Virginia bill that would declare that nothing in that bill could be construed to outlaw any form of legal contraception. 
And Republicans in the Virginia House of Delegates voted no on that by a huge margin. The vote was 64 to 34 against taking birth control out of the equation. So in Virginia, Republicans had a wide open opportunity to say this personhood thing, this bill is only about banning abortion. We do not want to ban birth control. They had the opportunity to say that and they rejected it hugely. Virginia Republicans have watched this personhood measure go down over and over again across the country, in in large part because it is seen as a way to ban birth control. But they're not even contesting that idea in Virginia. Ban birth control? Sure, sounds like a plan. That is what passed the Virginia House of Delegates today, the anti-abortion, anti-birth control personhood bill. And now uh, it's headed over to the Virginia Senate. In recent years, the Senate in Virginia has been uh, kind of the brakes for this sort of legislation in the Commonwealth of Virginia. The Senate was under Democratic control, and it had essentially been a cooling-off chamber for Virginia conservatives' um, really intrusive big government proposals on social issues like this. But now Republicans are in control of the state Senate and Virginia politics watchers say that this personhood bill has a pretty good chance in the Senate. If it passes the House and passes the Senate, Virginia's uber conservative governor, Bob McDonnell, will say nothing more than that he plans to take a look at it if it reaches his desk. But wait, there's more. Um, Not only are Republicans of Virginia moving to pass a bill that could ban birth control, and that they explicitly acknowledge could ban birth control. Virginia Republicans have already passed in both chambers a bill that would have the state government force Virginia women into having medically unnecessary, unwanted vaginal ultrasounds. That's a physical penetration of the body ultrasound by state order without your consent. That would be forced on you as a condition of your being allowed to have an abortion in the state of Virginia. I don't mean to be unnecessarily graphic about this, but the legislation is really specific about how detailed the ultrasound has to be. And so for the vast majority of women seeking an abortion in the Commonwealth of Virginia, the state government will specifically require a physical internal probe for which there is no medical reason and for which neither you or your doctor has uh, a choice. The AP, um, AP reported on this today. And you know, you know how I'm, I'm a highlighter-based life form? I'm always reading with either a pencil or highlighter in my hand. You know it's an incredible story when you are reading a like three-paragraph news story and you're highlighting the important parts and you end up highlighting the entire story. So just from the Associated Press today, quoting from them directly, legislation that has advanced on the strength of a GOP majority would force women to undergo a transvaginal ultrasound that produces fetal images. An amendment by Dele- uh, Delegate David Englin, De- Democrat of Alexandria, would have allowed medical professionals to determine whether images can be obtained without being penetrated by equipment used in the ultrasound, women would have to give written consent to such a probe under England's amendments, but not to sonograms that aren't invasive. The amendment failed on a 64 to 34 vote, setting up the bill for final House passage. So Republicans in Virginia seriously uh, want a government so big that it can literally get inside individual citizens' genitals by force and without their consent. That bill, the Let the Government Inside Your Body bill, passed the Republican-controlled Virginia House of Delegates today. It has already passed the Republican-controlled Virginia Senate. And Republican Governor Bob McDonnell says he will sign it. Virginia's governor is, of course, one of the leading candidates on the presumed vice presidential shortlist for Republicans this year. Sure, all of the Republican candidates for president have endorsed the ban on birth control personhood thing. But now one of the man, one of the men considered most likely to be chosen as vice president has the chance and says he will (laughs) 
sign this forced ultrasound thing into law. He will have a chance to actually sign into law a birth control ban. Government-mandated, medically unnecessary transvaginal ultrasounds from the state of Virginia. So that's going to be the choice for voters in November, right? Let's say they pick Bob McDonald, right? So are you going to go with the it's okay to outlaw birth control, anti-family planning presidential ticket that wants to force its way into your, right? Uh, or are you going to go with the pro-birth control, pro-family planning presidential ticket that would like to leave your to you? I can feel it in my bones. Give me sympathy. After all of this is gone, who would you rather be? The Beatles or the Rolling Stones? Oh, seriously, you're gonna make mistakes, you're young. Come on, baby, play me some. Like here comes the sun Come on baby play me something Like here comes the sun It's the Onion Radio News. A girlfriend is acting all clingy after getting pregnant. This is Doyle Redland reporting. Dave Buckner of Tucson, Arizona, charged today that longtime girlfriend Janice Feener has been, quote, a lot more clingy ever since learning she was pregnant with his child just over a month ago. The 32-year-old human resources manager explains. All of a sudden, she's saying I love you six times a day and wants to sit around on the couch hugging all night. I'm not sure what's gotten in her, man, but it's getting really annoying. Buckner added that he'll never be able to withstand seven and a half more months of Feener's behavior and is considering the purchase of a dachshund puppy for her to focus on. Doyle Redlin for the Onion Radio News. In the songs I hear in my mind All of these voices I hear in my mind All of these words I hear in my mind Virginia State Senator Janet Howell has uh, basically called for an amendment that would uh, force men who need Viagra or want to get Viagra to get a rectal exam first. Win. <laughs> and she's Slash do- immediate loss. <laughs> but I, I love it because it seems so random, right? Why? What does a rectal exam have anything to do with, you know, erectile dysfunction? And uh, you think, like, why is she striking out against guys like this? God, it seems so hateful, right? Right. Until you find out why she did it. Right. So she's basically doing this uh, as a way of protesting a bill that the Senate is voting on in Virginia right now that would force women who want to get an abortion to look at their ultrasound, right? Uh, So I love the point she's making. She's saying, look, you're forcing an invasive procedure on a woman who doesn't necessarily want it. And by the way, also at her cost let alone convenience, let alone moral decisions made about your own uh, body, etc., right? So if you're going to force this on women, and a lot of you that are voting on this are guys, right? Well, all right, great. Then two, uh, two can play at that game. You want to get Viagra? Let me see your rectum. 
<laughs> Not personally, she doesn't want to see it, right? Right. But she wants the doctor to do, a, to do a check and to do a cardiac check too, which, by the way, might help some people. But yeah, a cardiac check I think makes sense. But you know, the rectal exam is obviously a way of getting uh, catching people's attention, and nothing makes people like cringe a little bit more than the idea of getting a rectal exam. Yeah, except <laughs> for by the way, if you're uh, in a really tight spot and you need an abortion, and somebody makes you look at your ultrasound. That makes you incredibly uncomfortable. So hey, uh, you know, two can play at that game. And you know what the amazing part of this is? And now, and I mentioned that it's an amendment. It's an amendment to a bill in the state uh, of Virginia, right? The bill, uh, her amendment, barely lost. It, I know. What's amazing? Okay, first of all, there are seven women in the Virginia State Senate. Um, six of those women voted in favor of the bill. Okay, so that makes a lot of sense. But what's amazing is that it just barely lost. I want to give it's you the numbers. It lost 21 to 19. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah, it almost passed. Could you imagine if it passed? All of a sudden, they're like, really? We really have to <laughs> make sure men get rectal exams if they want Viagra in Virginia. That's amazing. <laughs> By the way, I really loved her quote, so I wanted to read it to you guys. She says, we need some gender equality here. The Virginia Senate is about to pass a bill that will require a woman to have totally unnecessary medical procedure at their cost and inconvenience. If we're going to do that to women, why not do that to men? Yeah! <laughs> look at that female power for men. No, because and look, get me understand where I'm coming from. Like you have all of these male senators, politicians. You have Rick Santorum telling women if you get raped, you should be forced to have that baby. Who are you? You have a penis. You don't know what it's like to carry a baby for nine months. You don't have to deal with that drama, right? You get to stand and watch and you know judge women based on whatever your religious beliefs are. So I love the idea of having women, you know, basically. Uh, proposed legislation that would really affect a man and then you see what it's like. And by the way, get a load of the courage of these uh, state senators because after they took a vote 19 to 21 on that bill, when it came to the ultrasound bill, they didn't actually count people's voice, a vote. They did a voice vote which then allows them to say, oh, I don't know who voted for it and who didn't, it just happened to pass. I was gonna ask you about that, because I'm like, a voice vote, you know, does that make sure that there's no name recognition when yeah. it comes to the bill? Okay. That's the cheesy way of passing something, when you think, uh, I wanna take credit for it now with my supporters, but later I wanna be able to deny. I hope you enjoyed this show, but also consider it a valuable tool for not only aggregating, but more importantly, amplifying our view of progressive politics in the world. So if that's true, I ask you to support this work by becoming a member of the show at whatever level you're able, as anything from a basic leftist up through the ranks of socialist, communist, Satanist, or even the most reviled level of support, George Soros. I produce 11 episodes a month of fearless coverage on all the hot-button issues we face, maintaining a rock-solid schedule. So if that sounds worth supporting, please consider signing up to donate as little as 5 $5 a month or even $55 a year. Members also gain access to bonus audio and video content that doesn't make it into the show itself. So for a concrete way to support a strong progressive voice, please visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Uh, the Susan G. Komen Foundation has revised its policy that would bar it from uh, delivering funding to Planned Parenthood, which was a big story in the last few days. They were caught in this kind of maelstrom of public reaction to its decision, and uh, they were going to cease uh, funding Planned Parenthood, and they are going to reverse course because, Lewis, it is such a PR disaster when you are such a well-liked organization, uh, organization. Su Susan G. Komen 
and Race for the Cure, well-known, very favorable, everybody loves the work that they do. And as a result of these two people who are involved in their organization, Karen Handel, who we talked about, and also Jane Abraham, who is uh, who, who's a, a part of a, a board member of a group that's dedicated to spreading falsehoods, uh, specifically about Planned Parenthood, that's the Susan B. Anthony list, all of a sudden they pull funding from Pan Planned Parenthood, it goes disastrously wrong, and they end up having to back up on this. I'm thrilled that it happened. We were one of thousands of blogs and shows talking about this, and they reversed it, and they were going to lose a lot of money as a result. If you include blogs, probably tens of thousands. You're probably right. Um, and considering the amount of the, the level of the response, this is no surprise. And to be clear, there are many who are saying, do not donate to Susan G. Komen anymore, even though they have reversed this, because the people on their board are not people that we want to be associated with if we are in the pro-choice side and the logic and reason side of American culture. There are alternatives, the Breast Cancer Prevention Institute, the National Breast Cancer Foundation, and you can also donate directly to Planned Parenthood. So a lot of alternatives. If you're a woman or if you're married to a woman or if you've got a sister or a daughter or a mom or if you're just a decent human being, you got to be appalled by a massive study on rape that the CDC just released. It shows that almost one out of every five women in the United States has been a victim of rape or attempted rape. One out of five. And more than 1,300,000 women were victims of rape or attempted rape last year alone. This is a crime wave of horrific proportions, and yet it's been normalized in our society. Hell, a frat at the University of Vermont recently sent out a questionnaire asking, who would you like to rape? Rapes on campus are an all-too-common occurrence, and often colleges don't publicize these crimes or adequately protect their female students. And rapes by husbands or boyfriends account for more than half of the incidents the CDC reported. We need to reawaken the country's consciousness about rape, especially male consciousness. Fathers need to tell their sons. Coaches need to tell their athletes. Teachers need to tell their students. Rape is a disgusting crime of violence, and it will not be tolerated. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it. This is the Media Matters Minute. I'm Danny Herrera. During a segment about new rules regarding women in the military, Fox News contributor Liz Trotta attacked the Department of Defense for increasing spending on support programs for victims of sexual assault. There's been, since 2006, a 64% increase in violent sexual assaults. Now, what did they expect? So you have this whole bureaucracy upon bureaucracy being built up with all kinds of levels of people to support women in the military who are now being raped too much. 
Well, many would say that they need to be protected, and these uh, these uh, sexual programs, abuse programs, are necessary. That's so, funny. I thought, I thought the, uh, the, uh, the mission of the Army and the Navy and Forest Services was to defend and protect us, not the people who were fighting the war. You remember, of course, the Susan G. Komen Foundation uh, controversy. Uh, they took away funding from Planned Parenthood, and then they came back later and backpedaled and said, we will later reconsider Planned Parenthood's funding uh, like we do with any other group. Uh, we will not take uh, po these political uh, hearings into account. And remember, the Republicans started a hearing against Planned Parenthood, and that was the excuse that Susan G. Komen Foundation had used to take away funding from Planned Parenthood. And of course, the money did not go to abortions. It went for breast cancer examinations. Hundreds of thousands of women, over 700,000 women get breast uh, exams at, at Planned Parenthood. They took money away from that. That's why everybody was so mad. Well, one of the uh, people that was accused of orchestrating this was Karen Handel, who is a right-winger, who's, uh, uh, who's a very important VP for Susan G. Komen Foundation. Now. I argued both on the Young Turks Online and the Young Turks on Current that hey, we don't know that she necessarily orchestrated and was the reason behind this. And I, I and I want right wingers and left wingers to work together to help find a cure, etc. I don't want this to become political. And hence, to be honest, I had defended her to some degree. Not to say that she didn't do anything wrong, but I wasn't sure that she should be fired because I thought there wasn't enough evidence. Well, there is now. An insider has come out and told Huffington Post. Uh, and by the way, this is very important, shown internal emails to this effect, proving her case, that in fact it was Karen Handel who had engineered this for political reasons. Let me give you some of the quotes. The insider said uh, that Karen Handel basically told the leadership of Susan G. Komen, quote, if we just say it's about investigations, we can defund Planned Parenthood and no one can blame us for being political. In other words, we're going to be political, but if we just say it's about the investigation, we'll pretend it's not political. And by the way, this is a, at the same time, of course, the Republicans are doing those hearings. You think that at some point, in some way, that's not coordinated either? Like Gala G. Willikers, look at that, the right winger inside Susan G. Komen and the right winger inside Congress working together to make sure they strip away money from Planned Parenthood. Now, you see the internal source here proving that, in fact, it was a coordinated attack and a conspiracy, uh, and one that was purely political, launched by Karen Handel. Now, uh, here are more quotes from that insider. Every time someone would even mention a protest, she, meaning Karen Handel, would magnify it, pump it up, exaggerate it. She's the one that kept driving this issue. Now, what she's referring to here is, there'd be some minor protests that Susan G. Komen Foundation should not be giving to Planned Parenthood. Never amounted to anything. But every time anybody brought it up, internally, Karen Handel would be like, oh my god, look at these protests. It's causing us so much political trouble. We've got to get rid of this problem. The best way to get rid of it is to defund Planned Parenthood from Susan G. Komen. So just, okay, all right. And so she's ginning it up. See, the, the reason I had defended her earlier is because I don't care what your ideology is if you're working towards the same cause. But now we find out she wasn't working towards that cause at all. She's basically inside Susan G. Komen working for her own cause, which is the defund Planned Parenthood. She cares much more about abortion than she does about breast cancer. 
Great, then go work at an abortion unit. Work at a pro-life group. Don't come in here and try to undermine the efforts of the rest of the foundation for your own political agenda. And here's the third quote. It was apparent to everyone in the organization that Karen was doing everything in her power to defund Planned Parenthood. Well, again, if this was just one insider and she didn't back it up with emails, you might wonder. But Huffington Post said they had to... Uh, they looked at the emails, it backed up what she said totally. So then it's an open and shut case. No question Karen Handel should be fired immediately. It's not because she's a right winger, it's because she doesn't give a damn about breast cancer. She cares about her own pet issue of being pro-life, pro-abortion, and she cares about undermining that at the cost of helping fight breast cancer. So that you, you Planned Parenthood doesn't get money to do 700,000 breast exams? Apparently Karen Handel doesn't give a damn as long as she gets to do her political agenda and do a hatchet job on Planned Parenthood. No question whatsoever now. Now that the evidence is in, fired immediately. And if they don't, there should be consequences. So you think Susan G. Komen Foundation has done the right thing? Not yet. Not by a long shot. Lewis, what would you say is the number one reason people should tune into the David Pakman show if they like Jay Tomlinson's Best of the Left podcast? I mean, I see it completely differently from, from someone who's just watching it. Yeah, well, but if I was asking someone else's opinion for the promo... I don't even watch our show, so how can I answer that question? I do not watch our show. So Lewis is, isn't even a fan of the show. <laughs> Maybe the answer is Lewis doesn't actually like this show. Can you be show. a fan of the show? I mean, are you? Can, is, isn't that kind of stupid to be a fan of your own show? I'm a huge fan of this show. <laughs> of course. That's like being a fan of yourself. You're like a narcissist. What, do you put pictures up of yourself at home, too? Well, if that doesn't make you curious, I don't know what will. Check out The David Pakman Show at davidpakman.com. This is your moment of clarity from LeeCamp.net. Recently, the abortion birth control debate has bubbled to the top again, and let's call it what it actually is. It's not an attack on women. It's a defense of the absolute holy power of men. Grandiose, douche-faced, Quasimodo-looking motherfuckers are worried that they don't have control over women anymore. They're worried about the idea of a woman with her lesser intellectual faculties making choices about her own body. And if a woman's not subservient to her man, then that means we aren't living in the 1950s anymore. Which is secretly where these guys want to be. Because women did what they were told, and black people didn't talk to you and you weren't supposed to respect Arabs as if they were human beings and you could even steal a simple primary election without people getting their panties all in a bunch and acting like all the votes should be counted. Mitt, I'm looking in your direction and a lot of those people who want those votes counted, fucking women. Recently some of the GOP have been talking about how 90% of Planned Parenthood's funding goes to abortion. And the truth is, that's a lot of fucking abortion. That's like aborting, like, everybody. It's too bad those congressmen were only off by 87 points with that number. It's 3%. 3% of their funding goes to abortion. That's a lot wrong. I mean, to be that wrong, you have to be unfamiliar with numbers of any sort. That's like confusing the number 36 with a 
spoon. That's like confusing your multiplication tables with real tables. You remember in third grade math class when that one kid answered every question by picking his nose and then sticking it in his ear? That's the level these people are at. And besides, imagine if women had legal control over any aspect of the male anatomy. Imagine if a congress of 80% women voted that all men had to be circumcised or have a vasectomy or could only come twice a year. How long would that last before there was a massive civil war with thousands of deaths ending in the president signing the ejaculation proclamation? But male power is just the real reason these men are upset. Let's spend some time addressing the stupid bullshit reason they're upset. They want to claim it's about religion, about the sanctity of life. And 95% of the time, these are the same people who are ready to drop a bomb at the drop of a hat. They'll blow up endless numbers of children and babies in Afghanistan, Vietnam, Korea, and Iraq. They'll abort millions the world over in the name of oil with defense as the pretense. Millions that are not minuscule eggs or bundles of cells. These people have names and clothing and likes and dislikes. And one of their biggest dislikes? being bombed. Furthermore, if you're so pro-life, if life is a gift from the Almighty, if it's incredible and awe-inspiring, then how about standing up against factory farms? Millions of living, breathing creatures with the IQ of a three-year-old human are slammed together in cages no bigger than their bodies. Do you love all of God's creatures? What about the ones you torture and pump full of more chemicals than Sylvester Stallone's face? When all the wars have ended and the Republicans don't flip out at the idea of decreasing our nuclear arsenal and all the factory farms are stopped, then, and only then, will I take your love of life seriously. Until then, this is just a bunch of unevolved men making sure they maintain some power over the broads. We got a piece of good news today. Karen Handel, uh, the VP of Susan G. Komen, uh, is no longer the VP of Susan G. Komen. Apparently they told her, you can't handle the truth. So this is great news. Uh, she has decided to resign uh, and you know she released a statement that said I am deeply disappointed by the gross mischaracterizations of the strategy, its rationale and my involvement in it. I openly acknowledge my role in the matter and continue to believe our decision was the best one for Coleman's future and the women we serve. My bottom line interpretation of that uh, quote is um, uh, I can't believe you guys said I orchestrated this and by the way I orchestrated this. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> all right, well that's what we thought. That's why we thought you should go. Because, and everybody remember why we said he, she should be fired immediately uh, yesterday on the program, because we found out from an inside source uh, with corroborating evidence from emails, internal emails, showing that she had been pushing for this political agenda all along. Susan G. Komen Foundation's money went towards 170,000 breast exams at Planned Parenthood over the last five years. So if they defund Planned Parenthood, there's so many less breast exams. But Karen Handel didn't care. She, she cared about pro-life, pro-choice abortion more than she cared about breast cancer. That's why she had to be fired. 
because she wasn't there to do her job. She was there to push her political agenda. And the internal sources at, at Susan G. Komen Foundation absolutely confirmed that. And today, of course, they listened to the Young Turks and fired her. Right, that's exactly what happened. They listened to the Young Turks. Yeah. But look, it, the proof was in the pudding. When she was campaigning in Georgia to be elected as governor, that was the main platform that she was campaigning on. She was uh, anti-abortion. In fact, she was in a constant debate with uh, other candidates about who's more anti-abortion, right? right? She was endorsed by Sarah Palin. I mean, there's no question about it that this was political. And in her campaign, she talked about defunding Planned Parenthood. Right. This is not a coincidence. This is an ongoing, you know, a plan that is coordinated. Uh, there's, of course, uh, Republicans within Congress who are pushing for uh, defunding Planned Parenthood and investigating it, etc. And it's all working coordination. Uh, and of course, the Republican activists are trying to infiltrate Planned Parenthood. This is what they did to Acorn, and they're trying to do it here. And for Susan G. Komen Foundation to politicize themselves and get involved in this group was a horrible mistake. Now, I thought it was something that they had done because this woman came in and convinced them, and golly gee, they didn't know much about politics, etc. When it turns out, in fact, uh, a great uh, section of the board, including the founder of Susan G. Komen Foundation and the current head, are all Republican. Uh, not, they're not just Republicans, and there's nothing wrong with that in terms of fighting breast cancer. There are severe like, Republican activists that give a tremendous amount of money to the Republican Party. In fact, a lot of them endorsed uh, George Bush. They didn't and just endorse George Bush. Several people on the board raised over a quarter of a million dollars for George Bush, including the founder of Susan G. Komen Foundation. She was a pioneer for the Bush campaign. You look at the list of their uh, board of directors. Nancy Brinker, she's the CEO that you mentioned. She was a hardcore Bush uh, supporter. Then her son is also on the board of directors, Eric Brinker, Linda Custard, Connie O'Neill, Linda Law. These are all Republicans that are very, very much uh, in that Republican circle in terms of politics. Um, there are a few uh, Democrats, and then Elise Gellerman is the only person who doesn't have a political record at all. But, you know, people are questioning whether or not them changing their stance on Planned Parenthood is enough to trust their organization. And look, I was very ignorant on Susan G. Komen Foundation prior to this. I thought, oh, they're raising money for breast cancer research. How are you going to dislike them? But you look into the numbers and you look at the amount of money they raise. And the amount of money they actually give to the cause, and you realize they might be a nonprofit, but there's something wrong here. For instance, Nancy Brinker makes about $417,000 annually. If you're trying to fight breast cancer, $417,000 is an awful high salary to take as you had that foundation. And it's not like they had to recruit somebody from somewhere else and God, this person led, I don't know, make it up, IBM and it's, she's, if we can just get her on board, the organization will do so much better. No, she's the one who founded it in the first place. Why do you think she's able to bring home a salary like that? Because you cut corners and you don't donate as much as you should to the cost. I'll give you an example. They've only donated 7% to treatment, 15% to screening. For research, only 24%. For education, 34%. The downside is education is marketing costs. And that's your larger uh, percentage there. You wish the larger percentage would be prevention, treatment, cure. It's a race for the cure, right? Mm -hmm. The upside of education is they have you know, done a great job of getting the country to realize, hey, you know what, uh, this affects one in eight women and you need to have regular breast exams. And I think that they, should, they deserve a lot of credit for that.
But they gotta tighten up here. They can't get involved in politics. I think they give too much to their CEO. And I would definitely start playing around with those percentages there. People, they've done such a good job in educating Americans about breast cancer. I'd move some of the money to actually trying to find a cure now. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. In the past week or so, there were two big events in the world of women's health. First was the all-male house contraception hearing about whether religious institutions can opt out of paying for birth control. And the other was a proposed Virginia law that would require women to get ultrasounds before they were allowed to have abortions. There's a huge outcry from women about these two events. And David, what do you make of these past couple weeks in the women's health wars? Do you think that these are kind of just fringe moves that will be defeated and they're like all the other fringe moves that we've seen in the past decades? Or do you think we're moving into some kind of new stage? I think it's pretty clear that as a cultural issue, uh, we're not going back to an era where women can't get contraception or where the stigmatization of women who use contraception. That part is obvious. On the particulars of the federal mandate for contraceptive coverage and free contraception for women, I'm not sure that the Obama administration has got the great victory that it hoped it was going to get. I think it had a fantasy that it had jujitsued the uh, Republicans and conservatives. But now all these religious organizations that self-insure are saying, you know what, we still are going to have to be forced to pay for contraception that we don't want to pay or infringing on our religious liberty. What all of it on the this federal contraception points out is how incredibly stupid it is to have a healthcare system which is based only on employers supplying healthcare to employees. That that why should I, as an employee of the Catholic Church or a synagogue or whoever whatever it is, why should my choice about my reproductive health be determined by who my employer is? It should be it should be based on some general set of, of healthcare principles and people either should buy insurance as individuals out in the marketplace, or there should be some kind of grand national health care that's supplied by the federal government. The idea that it's employers that one by one by one are making health care decisions is just demented. And so that's the I think that's the larger context for the stupidity around the this this uh, federal contraceptive uh, regulation. Right. But I don't think it's going to have the result of bringing single payer back on the table or Move, I mean, I don't think anyone's going to end up being happy going forward. I mean, this is what we have, right? Sure. As a policy matter, you're absolutely right. I think that right. the issue is that this kind of social issue, and I guess this is the, the tenor of your question to begin with, these social issues are very useful for certain groups to get exercised about. That religious organizations, and particularly conservative religious organizations, can get really, really worked up about this 
law and about them being forced to supply contraception against their religious principles to people. And that is a great fundraising tool for certain groups and a great political tool for certain kinds of candidates. And then on, on the other side, the things like the idiotic Virginia vaginal ultrasound law are great for uh, women's groups to fundraise for and for people who want to organize uh, women on the left to get outraged. But you think it'll just be the continued sturm and drang from both sides that has been going on for a long time, and it's not going to move the needle necessarily either way. You know what does seem new to me is Rick Santorum. Like What Rick Santorum is saying about contraception on a national stage as a presidential candidate who's suddenly being taken extremely seriously, that is new. Like The actual doctrine behind what he's saying is very, very old, but, but the fact that a mainstream candidate is saying something that extreme about contraception – that's new. And I think that's moving the needle, um, maybe not necessarily in a policy sense, but in a sort of how to what extremes people are taking it. Right. But I think for many voters, it's not a huge issue. I mean, I guess it's the fundamental question for me. I find it difficult to parse whether or not, again, that this is my original question. Like, is it a new frontier or is it just like we're going to go back and forth as we've gone back and forth? Because I, I asked you know, someone I know who isn't a liberal Democrat whose Facebook feed isn't filled where did, with where people. Where did you meet this I person? I know, it's <laughs> so confusing. But, you know, they, you know, all the commentary from liberal feminists is like, oh, Republicans are just doing this to take away contraception. And it's not about religious freedom. But it, Republicans really do think that this is about religious freedom. And so it's not. Well, there's, and there's something to that point. Right. You know, and. David, I want to go back to your original point where you, where you said that you don't think Obama pulled off this jujitsu where he made, you know, where he, he managed through sort of this lawyerly distinction to keep religious freedom, you know, unviolated and to make reproductive rights champions happy. Why you think just the, the pushbacks in the congressional hearings this week or what? So the solution that President Obama came up with was the solution whereby religious organizations would not actually have to supply the contraceptive coverage to their employees, that it would be the insurer would do it separately. But it turns out, of course, that a lot of these large religious organizations self-insure. Mm -hmm. And therefore, there is no separate uh, system for them right. to supply it. And so the solution is not a solution for them if they really believe that this violates their their principles, they are now in the same position they were with the original rule. So President Obama's solution was no solution at all for them. So then where is there to go? Back to non-employer-based health insurance. Yes. Right. But we're not going to go there. So what there right. is, is there, what there is, is there's a time for lots of theatrics. Your point about Centorum is really interesting, Noreen, because he is, watching him in action is absolutely fascinating to see his culture warrior stuff, things that you thought were litigated in some cases, 50 years ago, in other cases, 25 years ago or 10 years ago, certainly things that you were certain had been already litigated and settled in the public mind, for him to be going out and actually campaigning on them is, is enthralling. It's like, it's like a time machine. Do you think it's because he walks the walk that he is able to make these points so strongly in the mainstream that haven't been able to be made? You know, he has the seven kids and he's so had does, the... So does Nancy Pelosi. That's what's weird for me as a Catholic watching this play out. Like, he he scans as an evangelical, you know? And Catholics tend to be really private people to make a broad cultural generalization. And he is the opposite of that. But Noreen, you're like an old school Catholic. There's a whole 
group of new school Catholics and Newt Gingrich fits in there and, mm-hmm. and all these people who are these Catholic converts and Clarence Thomas is another one where, which is a kind of Catholicism, which is almost evangelical Catholicism. It's very traditional Vatican. But it's, a, it's a minority. Too. It's a minority, it's a minority it's group a, within Catholicism. But right, it's a but growing it's, minority And it's group. very highly representative in the conservative elite, though. There's a lot, right. a lot, a lot of, of extremely traditional Catholics in the Washington conservative elite. Agreed. It, it is just weird for me to watch that be the version of Catholicism that is brought into politics now, when for many years it was sort of in the Kennedy mold. That is no longer what's being played out. I mean, on the left, sure, but but that's not what's getting the attention. This has been widely cited, but if you look at the stats on contraception, most Catholics, 98% of Catholic women use contraception. So he, again, I think is in the minority. One interesting theory about this, which I'm interested in in your guys' views about, is that right now uh, the economy is in relatively – seems relatively better than it seemed. Right. And in particular, Mitt Romney's campaign, which has been based on, a, on an economic case against President Obama, that that economic case is not as strong as it was, say, a month or two months ago. All this Detroit is back. Uh, you know, the jobs picture is slightly better than it's been. And you have a group of extremely angry conservative voters whose major intellectual objection to President Obama that he's ruined the economy does not perhaps feel as strong as it did to them a few months ago. And so where are they turning? They're turning to some other way in which President Obama is betraying the nation. And he's betraying the nation by with his socialist, uh, anti-religious, sexually promiscuous values that he's trying to shove down the throat of uh, America's religious people. The failure of the economic argument at this current moment has led to the success of Santorum and the success of these socially conservative arguments. I think that's a really smart point. I think that goes farther to explaining why Santorum, you know, is surging at exactly the right moment than anything else I've heard. I buy it. I think I have a warped perception because in the news that I follow, this stuff is huge news every time mm-hmm. there's any burp about contraception or abortion. It's just, it just seems like the outrage world rears its head. And, and so it seems like it's a huge deal. I feel like some of this was burbling up in the fall before the economy seemed to be improving so dramatically. But I think it's still a, a totally valid point. Another one of Santorum's really interesting arguments is this point about um, prenatal testing, that prenatal testing is used as a form of eugenics as a way to get rid of disabled kids that parents see that their kids have Down syndrome or trisomy 18 or whatever it is, and then they get abortions because they've had these prenatal tests, whereas historically, these children might just have been born and and would have been raised. I think it's a really smart pro-life strategy to force pro-choice people to talk about it. And Rick Santorum would be wise to continue to move forward talking about this because basically women who choose to abort when they're faced with this, my sense is they're not doing it for eugenics purposes, but they're doing it because they don't want to face the hardship of raising a special needs child. And they, if pressed, they would be forced to admit that. But that's what they're defining as eugenics. Like, if you're going to hop inside his argument for a minute, that's what he's calling eugenics. Right. Yeah. No, I know. And they will have to defend that because that's right. what it is and that's what's happening. Right. So right. Exactly. the idea that it should be a private choice and it shouldn't be something that's legislated, it's really hard for them to win points saying that. You know, once it's moved back into this personal thing, like you are killing Down syndrome babies, 
pro-choicers have completely lost the fight. So it's actually a really wise thing for him to hone in on. This is slightly off topic, but the Huffington Post just published something, and I hadn't heard this before. In 1995, Santorum gave an interview in which she said, I was pro-choice basically until I entered politics, which I found fascinating that that is out there. Like, in, It was in Philadelphia Magazine, I think. And that was before he had, you know, before he had as many children as he had has, and had his special needs child. But I just thought that was really sort of... His wife lived with an abortion well, provider, which is I, something we've mentioned on the GabFest before. Will Salatin's great series on Mitt Romney's views on abortion and how they've changed or not changed over the course of his career is really instructive. But as someone like Santorum, who is so deeply pro-life, yeah. it baffles me that he could once have been pro-choice or his wife could have once been pro-choice. And and this HuffPo article quoted the guy that, that she lived with, the abortion provider. Who knows this, if this is true, but supposedly uh, Santorum's wife, Karen, said said to this guy, oh, I just met this guy. You'll like him. You know, he's very involved in politics. He's pro-choice. So who knows? But Rick Santorum is, is fascinating. Just one other small point on this. I've always wanted to write a story about this, and I've never actually seen a really great one written. But the way in which disabled kids have become a conservative touchstone, that there's a lot of leading conservatives who have disabled kids, the way children with disabilities and and taking responsibility for them and raising them has become part of the conservative story is totally enthralling to me. It's a very powerful argument. I mean, I do think that Sarah Palin, the fact that she has this child with Down syndrome is really interesting doesn't and michelle bachman doesn't michelle bachman am i wrong about that thinking that she has a special needs kid no i think she just has a lot of foster children and she adopted kids with i don't know if they had down syndrome but there some of them had problems and santorum and there's several other examples but when i looked at this once of of leading conservatives who have special needs kids and who are very emphatic about how important that is and and how it reflects on pro-choice and pro-life issues you look often talk about reproductive rights, but there's been so much to talk about. And um, so we thought we would talk about a print uh, piece by Ross Dothet. Dothet? I never know how to pronounce his last Not to be confused with douche hat. Yeah. (laughs) The New York Times uh, columnist, that is a douche hat. (laughs) Um, He is obsessed with abortion rights. He got this, like, column. He's supposed to write about everything, but, like, I think, like, half of his columns are about ladies, vaginas, and how they need to be under control. And um, his latest piece is kind of a very strange one where he basically tries to argue that um, liberals' ideas of preventing unwanted pregnancy are all wrong because the only real way to prevent pregnancy is chastity and, weirdly, monogamy or unintended pregnancy and abortion. And some of the things he says in here that are just, um, I don't know... 
like his argument is really hard to understand. It doesn't really like cohes cohes cohesive well or whatever the word is. Yeah. It doesn't really hold together very well because he's basically trying to suggest try to find a way to say that contraception doesn't prevent unintended pregnancy without saying that. So he really dismisses contraception as just being chemicals and latex. Uh, right. I mean, and he really contradicts himself. I mean, I think you're absolutely right. There's no there's no cohesion to his argument because there is no cohesion to this argument. <laughs> <laughs> and so and so if you couple that with this, this argument is a difficult argument for some of the most persuasive arguers to make because the facts don't line up. Right. He's saying he literally lays out because the fir- I feel like the first paragraph I'm like, all right, I hear what you're saying. I was like, wow, this article might make sense. <laughs> you know, and he kind of lays out the land. He's like, these are the things that, you know, these are the these are the conditions that are kind of creating the circumstances for the abortion debate. But then he says himself, he's like, and the reason that a lot of these kind of like abstinence only education programs aren't working is because that's not how people are living their lives anymore. Yeah, but then he thinks you can strong arm them into living their lives in this kind of pre-sex past, which I don't ever think really existed. It never existed. And has he like never met? I mean... It doesn't surprise me that he's never, like, had sex, but, like, has he never... <laughs> he has one child. One child. Yeah, he's been married sense. for five years. He has one child. So we know he's done it once. <laughs> Pray for that child. But, he, but yeah, he, he has he never been around a teenager? Like, does he have no idea how <laughs> teenagers, how they interact with each other or how sex works? He wrote a whole book about being a student at Harvard, and the impression I got is that when he was an adolescent and exposed to other adolescents, he was uh, frightened and um, didn't understand their ways. (laughs) Um, And so as an adult, I think he has the same sort of attitude that, you know, people are going to, like, yes, like, most of us say people are going to do it whether you like it or not, and he just simply doesn't accept that. Right. He doesn't clearly doesn't accept that because he's like didn't happen for me, right? I, I feel like so many of these, so many people that hold these positions, it all comes back to like they're unrequited, like they can't make sense of the fact. Like it's like maybe nobody wanted to have sex with you, and that's why you think nobody, like people, can control themselves. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So like the linchpin of one of his arguments is like the notion that abortion rates are in fact higher in blue states than red states. Um, this isn't entirely true across the board, so he kind of tweaks it a little bit, saying it's higher in places with more liberal abortion laws. That is not entirely true, but it's somewhat true, if that makes any sense. Right. It is true that a lot of places that have very liberal abortion laws have a lot of abortions. But then when you kind of get into the weeds, it doesn't actually shake out that way as much as you would think. But... um not to get mired in statistics, but he kind of misses a couple of points here. So, for instance, he talks about how New York City has an incredibly high abortion rate, which is true. But he neglects to talk about how one of the reasons that New York City has an incredibly high abortion rate is that we have women coming in from different states right. and from the rest of the state to get abortions because you get top-notch abortion care in New York City. You can get abortions up to 24 weeks in New York City. Um, so we're basically getting all the refugees from states that don't allow women to get abortions um, as easily, including right. especially Pennsylvania. And one of the things to consider in this is that abortion restrictions often cause women 
who have very little money to not be able to abort in the early weeks of their pregnancy right. when they'd prefer. So we call it the hamster wheel in reproductive rights circles where you raise enough money to get an early term abortion, but now the price has gone up because it's been many weeks. And so you have to keep doing it, keep doing it. And we get a lot of those women in the city. So 15, 16 weeks, it just took them a long time to get the money together. And now they're here and sleeping in their car. Absolutely. Know. Absolutely. So, yeah, he doesn't take that into consideration. The other is, I I find that when people, I think sometimes people just take evidence and shove them into their arguments, right? I mean, this is like such a classic conservative move. But I can't think of any women that live in New York that are like, oh, I can just have sex unprotected because, like, I can just get an abortion here, you know, (laughs) where where it actually is a legitimate, like, because the, the coded argument here is that when women have access to abortion, they have sex so flagrantly and freely and they, 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 they just with such reckless abandon that they forget all the consequences. Like, do you know a single woman that doesn't know exactly the consequences of unprotected sex and pretty much goes to most lengths to prevent that? I mean, I, well, that's exact. I mean, I think you've hit on why you can't be um, anti-choice and a feminist that you can't be anti-abortion and a feminist because at the end of the day every anti-abortion argument goes back to this notion that women don't know what they're doing that right. women are so fundamentally stupid that they don't understand very basic biology right <laughs> like, right i don't know drilled into our heads yeah i really i mean i know a lot of women i don't know a single woman that's like oh yeah you know i mean and i even know women that engage in high-risk behavior but they all recognize the consequences of having sex and like not you know doing what they can to not get pregnant like abortion is not considered this legitimate way to control (laughs) a birth control (laughs) well first of all it's a hassle like i think if nothing else it's a huge hassle like even in new york where there's almost no obstacles between you and abortion care where you probably can walk in and get a same day appointment um it still costs five hundred dollars you still have to get your uterus vacuum out (laughs) like it's expensive it's very expensive um so yeah that's i think that i feel like that's the underlying argument is just like oh well you know like it's that it's that same fear of like if women can control like when their you know uteruses can be occupied they're obviously going to just like abuse this tremendous power that they're going to have and so we have to just go ahead and give it to men Thanks for listening, everyone. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 206-202-3410. So uh, this was part two of two of this little War on Women series I put together. And as I mentioned in the previous episode, I have a new conversation topic that I want to share with you guys. And, you know, we've gone through this a couple of times in the last few weeks. You know, first... We looked at uh, race relations and white privilege through the lens of food choices and veganism, and then we moved on and talked about the importance of, uh, you know, communication and listening skills among allies, you know, oppressed groups and allies of oppressed groups and, and how they talk to each other through the lens of the LGBT community's perspective on the It Gets Better campaign. And now today, I want to talk about a revelation I had that made me realize how profoundly ignorant I was on one particular aspect of women and and then share with you how I am slightly less ignorant about that now, uh, but, but certainly not completely 
caught up. You know, I have no illusions about that. So what happened is, you know, probably a year ago, I had a, a, several women uh, mentioned that I should start listening to more feminist shows and then include those perspectives on Best of the Left. I thought, I don't know why I didn't already do that. Done and done. And so, you know, not, not only did feminism in general and, and women's issues become a, a topic that I was searching for, for clips to use on the show, but I also subscribed to the, uh, the feminist show that is you know, by far the one that was recommended the most, which was uh, Slate.com's Double X Gabfest, which you heard a clip from today. And, you know, just for whatever reason, nothing they, they talked about, like, really struck a nerve with me until, you know, the discussion that you heard today. And, and so I hadn't used a clip from them, but I've been listening to them for a while now. And I was a little disappointed at, at first because I really wanted them to talk about the same issues that all of the male hosts were talking about, but to bring a female perspective to those issues. But what they very often do is, is you know, talk about whatever they want to talk You know, they, they bring the female perspective to the, the other topics that they feel are important, which is a perfectly reasonable way to, to run your show. But it, it just kind of made it hard to integrate into best of left, I felt. So one of the things I heard them doing on a you know somewhat regular basis was to talk about TV shows, and and at first like I was a little miffed about that. I just thought like oh you know I don't like none of the shows I listen to talk about TV shows. Why you know why you know if, if you're if you're only going to do an hour long show once a week or once every couple of weeks, why would you dedicate you know 20 minutes to talking about the new fall lineup or whatever. It just, it just, it, it, it wasn't how I would have chosen to spend time on a show. And, um, and I just thought, well, okay, you know, they're, they're just appealing to a really broad base of people. They talk about a little bit of politics, a little bit of pop culture, no big deal. You know, it's fine. And then the plot thickened when I started listening to a, a brand new feminist podcast, which is like really hardcore feminist, which is uh, opinionated, which you also heard from today. That was the last clip of the show. And, and these, these girls are not kidding around Their Their tagline is the feminists you were warned about. So, you know, okay, these are like, this is where I'm going to find the, the women talking about the, the hardcore political issues, women's perspective, hardcore feminism. Let's rock it. And then, at, at at some point, I heard them talking about TV shows. I was like, "Really? I, you guys are the hardcore feminists. What are you doing, spending your time talking about TV shows?" And and don't get me wrong, like I heard what they were saying. They were like, you know, the how are these women being portrayed on this show, and and so on and so forth. I was like, okay, like you're you're looking at the women in the show and ha like are women being shown as uh you know smart or stupid or 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 whatever like okay but aren't there bigger issues to be dealing with and i get the sense very very potentially that a lot of the women hearing my voice right now are like screaming because i don't understand and and what i'm here to tell you is i might understand a little bit because after being very confused at the hardcore feminist talking about TV shows. But then I thought, okay, like if, if two different shows are doing it, there's gotta be something to this. So what am I missing? And, and I, I, I realized like kind of, the, kind of the way to sum it up is narrative. How women are portrayed on television creates 
and reinforces a societal narrative. And it's not that the same thing doesn't happen with men because you could have the exact same conversation in reverse. You could talk about how men are often portrayed as, you know, fat or, or clumsy or they go drinking on the weekends or they're kind of buffoonish or, or whatever. I mean, those are, are memes that you see all the time in, in the media. But it's fundamentally different between the sexes because we live in a world where women are oppressed for being women. They get paid less. They, you know, you, you know the list. So for a negative narrative to be propagated and continued in the media is more detrimental to them than the exact reverse is detrimental to men. And so that's what made me realize, ah, I think I'm beginning to see now. I think I understand why it's important for women to talk about the female perspective of pop culture and, and analyzing it and, and talking about you know, how women are being portrayed negatively or, or you know their negative stereotypes are being uh, perpetuated and how men, although they can make the same arguments, don't bother making those arguments because men's lives aren't generally negatively affected by it. So that's the thought I had on this issue. And, you know, I feel like I went from being completely blind to sort of being able to see a, a fuzzy sketch outline of the issue. Uh, and so don't be confused into thinking that I, I'm saying that, hey, look, I had an epiphany and now I understand what it's like to be a woman. It's a baby step at best. But I think that it's important to talk about the degree to which people don't understand each other. Because like so often, as Donald Rumsfeld would say, you know, we don't know what we don't know. I didn't know that I didn't know that thing about women and the narrative being perpetuated in the pop popular culture. I, I didn't know it was something I needed to worry about, and now I've sort of learned it. And so if you're a woman who's frustrated with the fact that other people don't know that and, you know, men aren't sensitive to that – just understand how profoundly ignorant most people are about most things. I mean, I, I had a phone call with a, a volunteer for the show just last night, and, and she said one of the things that people very often say to me, hey, uh, you've probably heard this before, but... And then she gave me a, a great suggestion for the show. And the fact is, I had never heard her suggestion for the show before. And, and it's sort of, it's that evidence of, we think other people are doing things and saying things and, you know, the good ideas are getting out there. So you, you probably don't need to make an effort. They're not. They're not getting out there. <laughs> people are more ignorant than you think. And all the good ideas you, you have, it's not a given that other people are having those same ideas. It's really not. So you should totally share them. So anyways, hopefully that was helpful to some and hopefully uh, comments we get in response. I would love to hear from female listeners of the show on, on this and, uh, you know, fill in more of the nuances to this issue. I would love to hear about it. Please don't assume that other people are going to call in and therefore you don't have to because you're probably wrong. <laughs> probably other people aren't calling in because they are thinking the same thing. Oh, someone will call in, so I, I won't. No, no, no. You should really call in. So again, that number, 206-202-3410. Uh, uh, that's going to be it for today. I just want to thank a couple more uh, donors to my climate ride. Todd, Occupy Everywhere Downing, who's a great supporter of the show and uh, and uh, huge in the Occupy movement there in LA. And, uh, and Chris K both donated, bringing my total up to 33 
34% of my total, uh, working, working our way up to $2,400, currently at 819. So excellent progress being made. Uh, please keep those donations coming in. Uh, the link to donate, are, are, it's simply in the show notes of this episode. So go to bestoftheleft.com, look at the episode you're listening to, and right at the top we'll say, I'm writing to raise money, click here, etc. Now, of course, if you'd like to support the show itself, there are uh, recurring memberships that help support the show uh, tremendously, as well as uh, individual one-time donations that you can send in. All of that helps enormously. You can help uh, support the show by telling everyone you know about it. Donate your Twitter and Facebook accounts to us. That helps us spread the word through you. Stay tuned into the show between episodes by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information is always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every three days. Thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. The black and white. Bought a picture that wasn't right Pitch burning on a shining sheet The only maker that you want to meet A dying man in a living room Whose shadow bases the floor Who'll take you out in